Well, babe, we did it. We wrote a book. Yeah, man, it's it's actually surreal to even think about uh, that we wrote a book, had a baby, got married, not necessarily in that order. <laughs> <laughs> but the book is now available yeah. for pre-order, and we're so excited to share it with you. Oh, so looking forward to getting this book into your hands, to be in dialogue and conversation with all of you as we continue to liberate love from old imprints and codependent dynamics that keep us small, stuck, and stagnant. Yeah, you know, no matter your relationship status, this book walks you through what shaped you, why do you do what you do in relationship. It dives deep into your relationship blueprint, attachment styles, and most importantly, which is different than every other book that's ever covered codependency in the past, we explore the role of the nervous system in that. And the book is called Liberated Love. Yeah. Release your codependent patterns and create the love you desire. Go to createthelove.com slash liberated love to order your copy now. That's createthelove.com slash liberated love and get that pre-order in and you'll be able to get a free download of a meditation we created and a workbook that goes along with it. Much love and appreciation for your support. Much love. Thank you. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Mark Groves podcast. You know, I thought I'd make myself a coffee and just sit down and have a coffee with you and share with you some of the things that have been on my mind and moving through my soul and my heart. And to be honest with you, which I don't think there's any other way to be, especially now where, you know, you recognize that regardless of whether we share what's true about our emotion or our state or how we feel, it is resonant in our tone, our words, our bodies. That's why I've said you can not have conversations, but you'll still be having them in the ways that you interact with the world or avoid it. And, you know, I'd be remiss to say that you know, I don't feel sort of heavy or the chaos that's occurring outside of me. And I try to think about things like, you know, Eckhart Tolle and all these reminders as I meditate to, to really try to generate a center or find a center. I try to remember that what is going on outside of me is in some way all sort of an illusion, that it's all sort of this magic show that I'm creating this reality too by observing it. And I try not to sort of bypass my way through the reality of what's currently existing as you listen to this podcast, no matter what moment that might be, you're well aware of the state of the world and at all times, sort of the state of the world is in a bit of a bananas experience. I'm sure we can go back at any moment in any decade, and there's always something to be enraged about or fearful about or experience sort of collective chaos about. And I think in a lot of ways, the last 18 months have been this continued enrollment of chaos. You know, I look at things like the news or social media, and I'm reminded that news places, channels, advertisers, online places, they want you on them. We are in an attention economy. And to have your attention and your time on their site is ultimately their greatest goal, which this is in conflict with giving you good news and telling you what's good, you know? And so, 
you know, I've spoken about this before, this race to the bottom of the brainstem, this ability to hijack you and me and have us go down the rabbit hole of divisiveness and everything. And I was speaking the other day on an Instagram live and I was saying divisiveness is lazy because it requires no work. It requires no space. And I think of the line from the book, The Coddling of the American Mind, which I can't wait to have Jonathan Haidt on the podcast. I haven't materialized that, but I am manifesting it as I speak these words. But he talks about a quote that says, when you draw a circle to exclude me, I'll draw a bigger circle to include you. And that requires more capacity, more work. And this idea of looking at everyone and their experiences and their beliefs through what they've been through in their lives. And that takes extra space and extra attention. And when you are catapulted and hijacked by fear to observe the other and see yourself in them, and you hope that there's compassion for how you see the world and what you fear. And so by cultivating it, by being it, you generate it. And You know, it's so easy to draw a circle to exclude someone whose belief we don't agree with. And as I'm sure you heard in the Africa Brook podcast, we talked all about that. And that concerns me, you know, as I observe the language of the world, but especially of the political leaders, and you see this sort of continued sort of marketing campaign, because all the language that the leaders use then sort of propagate through the media And you see this generalized language sort of sets of marketing lines. And I used to be a pharmaceutical rep for 14 years. So anyone who's familiar with marketing is familiar where we have these speaking points and then they integrate themselves into culture. I mean, that's the ultimate line of success of a good marketing plan. And and what I mean by that is I'm observing some leaders of the world speaking very divisively and more specifically in Canada, listening to Justin Trudeau. And, you know, I've never really been political in some sense. And I just want to speak to this as a human who's observing this. And regardless of where you vote or what your political beliefs are, I I could give a fucking shit. I don't care. What I care about is that I hear him othering people. I hear him saying those people and they, and the way he's speaking about people who make one medical choice versus another. Again, no judgment or opinion on the choice, but the language is the part that is very fearful to me because it's the beginning of othering. And, you know, it made me think, and and just to sort of give you some context, I did a video speaking about this on Instagram and it went totally crazy in a good way, spread to lots of people who've have no clue who I am, which let me tell you, hops in your inbox in a totally different way. You get you get all the people and all the thoughts and all the opinions, which is great. And I'll speak more to that in a bit, that experience. But it showed me how desperate people were for this acknowledgement that that like you're not the only one feeling this way in your body when you hear people speak in a way that is othering or excluding or dehumanizing. It feels weird. It feels dark. And no matter what we think about the view they're speaking to, there's a somatic, a body experience of it that is generating an intuitive hit that this just isn't okay and it doesn't feel good. 
regardless if we're in the space of the other, but especially if we're the ones being othered. And it made me think of a talk that Brene Brown gave, I think I saw it about four years ago, on her book, Braving the Wilderness. I wanted to read some parts out from this article, which is an excerpt from chapter four from Brene Brown's book, Braving the Wilderness, and I encourage everyone to go buy it. And here I'll just start, this is her words, not mine. David Smith, the author of Less Than Human, explains that dehumanization is a response to conflicting motives. We want to harm a group of people, but it goes against our wiring as members of a social species to actually harm, kill, torture, or degrade other humans. Smith explains that there are very deep and natural inhibitions that prevent us from treating other people like animals, game, or dangerous predators. He writes, dehumanization is a way of, subver of subverting those inhibitions. Dehumanization is a process, Brene goes on here. I think Michelle Mice, I hope I pronounced that right, the chair of the philosophy department at Emmanuel College lays it out in a way that makes sense, so I'll use some of her work here to walk us through it. Mice defines dehumanization as the psychological process of demonizing the enemy, making them seem less than human and hence not worthy of humane treatment, end quote. Dehumanizing often starts with creating an enemy image. As we take sides, lose trust, and get angrier and angrier, we not only solidify an idea of our enemy, but also start to lose our ability to listen, communicate, and practice even a modicum of empathy. Once we see people on the other side, quote-unquote, of a conflict as morally inferior or even and even dangerous, the conflict starts being framed as good versus evil. Mice writes, once the parties have framed the conflict in this way, their positions become more rigid. In some cases, zero-sum thinking develops as parties come to believe that they must either secure their own victory or face defeat. New goals to punish or destroy the opponent arise, and in some cases, more militant leadership comes into power. Brene goes on, dehumanization has fueled innumerable acts of violence, human rights violations, war crimes, and genocides. It makes slavery, torture, and human trafficking possible. Dehumanizing others is the process by which we become accepting of violations against human nature, the human spirit, and for many of us, violations against the central tenets of our faith. How does this happen? Mice explains that most of us believe that people's basic human rights should not be violated, that crimes like murder, rape, and torture are wrong. Successful dehumanizing, however, creates moral exclusion. Groups targeted based on their identity, gender, ideology, skin color, ethnicity, religion, age, are depicted as less than or criminal or even evil. The targeted group eventually falls out of the scope of who is naturally protected by our moral code. This is moral exclusion and dehumanization at its core. Dehumanization always starts with language, often followed by images. And she has another really great, I just want to end with this. I know it's hard to believe that we ourselves could ever get to a place where we would exclude people from equal moral treatment, from our basic moral values, but we're fighting biology here. We're hard, hardwired to believe what we see and to attach meaning to the words we hear. We can't pretend that every citizen who participated in or was a bystander to human atrocities was a violent psychopath. That's not possible. It's not true. And it misses the point. The point is that we are all vulnerable to the slow and insidious practice of dehumanizing. Therefore, we are all responsible for recognizing it and stopping it. You know, 
read her words again, just as I was thinking about that talk she gave. And I just thought about like, you know, the language is just important to pay attention to. She has this point. When we hear people referred to as animals or aliens, we should immediately wonder, is this an attempt to reduce someone's humanity so we can get away with hurting them or denying them basic human rights? It's interesting, right? Because when you explore language, we've been sort of prepared or preparing for that. And, you know, I'm not, obviously, that none of this is Bernays' opinion about what we're talking about. I just thought her teachings were very relevant as I explore language and how we do that. You know, this week I heard a really great, I read a great quote, Pima Chodron, that I really loved. And she said, We learn to stay with the uneasiness, the tightening, the itch of our cravings. We train in sitting still with our desire to scratch. This is how we learn to stop the chain reaction of habitual patterns that otherwise will rule our lives. This is such a practice, right? And it's relevant to this because it's so easy to be reactive. It's so easy to be consumed by the fear. We certainly have every right to be afraid. And I keep breathing into that space being like my desire or my itch, you know, to want to react, defend, speak out, share, you know, really cling to the truth and also realize that none of that can come from a space of fawning, you know, or being excluding myself, drawing a circle that excludes other. And I think the real work is to, as the practice, I forget what book invited it, but to look at everybody as you with, as you would if you were looking through the eyes of Christ or whatever deity or spiritual example you might want. That just really has this compassionate lens that broadens my own, that brings sort of an exhale into my own experience. And this is so important relationally because this is what is community, what is the collective, that this sort of breathing into a deeper acceptance of all as we navigate the complexities of being in human systems. And that goes from a macro lens of a culture and a country and a society into a micro lens of you and I. And, you know, I there's some things that when I think about the context of vaccine passports, I was thinking about it. I'm like, what doesn't make sense about them for me? And there's some truths here that are just, I think, pretty undeniable. The first one is that both people who have been vaccinated and not vaccinated can carry a viral load, right? Like we know breakthrough infections exist and both people can get and give COVID, right? Vaccinated and the unvaccinated. And I'll just table here that the denial of natural immunity for some of the countries that have this, I'm more specifically in Canada, one of the provinces, you can't even have a negative test. You just have to be vaccinated or not. And in other ones, they take into account a negative test. But the denial of natural immunity is really fascinating and a little alarming. And so I just want to table that, that like that alone makes us all go, what? That doesn't make sense. But if we're just speaking about the intention of vaccine passports, their intention being to reduce hospitalizations and ICU, right? And I totally get that, and deaths. And so that makes total sense. The intention is that. What a beautiful intention. Now, if both people, the vaccinated or the unvaccinated, can get and give COVID, and of course, there's the argument and supported by data that the vaccinated have often a lower viral load and also maybe are less likely to give and get it, right? 
Okay, so that's generally the argument is this is why the passports make sense. But if they can get and give it, and the intention is to reduce hospitalizations and ICU and take the pressure off the system, then shouldn't we all just need to require a negative test? Like if we're being logical, and I really hope <laughs> logic makes a comeback in 20, late 2021, 2022, because it's not been looking good for it. But if we were being logical and we were to just call forward the truth of what made logical sense, Rapid tests are low cost. And I listened to a great podcast early in the pandemic from Lex Friedman, where he interviewed a gentleman, I believe from Harvard, talking about this. And I thought that was very brilliant. They're low cost. They're simple. You can find out immediately, even if they have a high false positivity rate, at least you're being cautious. And that's great, right? Might as well sort of explore the cautionary principle in the context of that. And and so I thought, okay, well, if you can both give and get it, then it doesn't make sense that people who can also give and get it get to just sort of make their way through society continuing to give and get it, as opposed to if we're really going to be logical about it, we should have to present a negative test. So that's my thoughts on that, because I don't, I can't make it make sense any other way. And I've really kind of been feeling in a lot of ways that when I hear different rules or regulations or mandates, I'm like, but that doesn't make logical sense. And they go, yeah, but it's just this, or it's just that. And I'm just mindful, like, I don't have this sort of deep-seated conspiracy theory that there's some larger, massive, nefarious intention, but it's easy to be open to any conspiracy theory when you notice these small and large gaps in logical thinking. Because if it was really about the deepest intention that we're spoken to about, then there would be a different policy. And so, you know, I sort of put on my marketer's product hat and I think, well, if I was to create the ultimate product, it would be one where you need it all the time, right? And again, I'm not saying that's the intention, but that's that possibility still exists. You can't just negate it, right? Like the truth exists, whether you like it or not. So the possibility exists that it is good for companies from a profit-based perspective that you continue to use something. And so, you know, we see this conversation about declining or waning vaccine efficacy, and then the need for boosters, et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, I want to acknowledge that none of this is medical advice. I'm not a doctor. I'm just sharing some of my opinions and thoughts and the things that have been coming forward for me because I've been feeling a lot of anxiety about not communicating or putting to language some of these things I've been experiencing. You know, for the first time in my life, when I take a deep breath in, I feel a bit constricted and I feel like I'm sort of breathing into a tightness, into an anxiety. And I recognize that a lot of that and just sort of finishing off or finishing my thoughts on this is I was talking to my friend Traver Boehm, who's been on the podcast, who's incredible. And he was speaking about a friend of his who said, you cannot have emotional health and be on social media. He said, your business can be, but you can't be. And I was recently reading an excerpt from the book, Break Up, How to Break Up with Your Phone. And it had a quote from Tim Wu. We must act individually and collectively to make our attention our own again, and so reclaim ownership of the very experience of living. Whew, and take ownership over the very experience of living. 
I invite you to explore your relationship with technology as I explore mine. You know, I find what's fascinating is when you share your thoughts, feelings, and opinions that might be against sort of the collective narrative, it, you will face pushback. You will face an onslaught. You will, even if you want to discuss it or be curious about it, those most hijacked by fear will want to quell their fear by quelling you, by canceling you, by telling you they're disappointed, that they're ashamed. And, you know, I get that a lot. I'm disappointed, Mark, in my inbox. You know, I've been really sitting with that. That's the use of shame to try to silence me, saying I'm disappointed in how you're showing up because I'm not fitting in the narrow box that you have of me where I keep you comfortable. And when I step out of that box or what quote unquote lane you have an expectation for me to stay in, that I should be canceled and shut up or that you, I disappointed you, someone I don't even know that's trying to use shame to keep me in line because you don't know how to hold the world when it makes you uncomfortable. And you know, I've really been thinking about that. Like the world itself, it does create discomfort. It is, it doesn't agree with everything we say. And certainly I'm, I get that because how can it? Of course, you're not going to agree with everything I said today. And I, once I bring in more information, might not agree with some of the things I said. And that's the beauty of not having our identity tied to our beliefs. This flexibility, this ability to shift and change as we learn and grow. But there's space for all of our experience. And that's us drawing a bigger circle. That's why I said divisiveness is lazy. I put you in a box and then I become the type of person who puts other people in boxes, which means I live in a box too. And so we are both limited in our capacity of who we can be. And so when someone says, I'm disappointed in what you said or who you are, or just I'm disappointed, comma, Mark, they're really disappointed in the constraints that they've created for themselves to never have any sense of discomfort. And it is not my job to save people from experiencing discomfort, just as it is not your job. And do you notice that that is the ultimate form of relational liberation is that you and I are not afraid to make each other uncomfortable, but we can sit in that space together to learn. Isn't that the essence of relating? Isn't that the essence of having conflict and managing it successfully? You know, just because someone's parent told them that the world would never disagree with them, it is not our job to then make the world something that never disagrees with them because they've never been able to sit in a space where they felt some sense of sadness that something they once believed was true is not true. I really, I really am continuously starting to look at the world in this way to see how fragile we are when it comes to intellectual communication and thought. And when you think about that, I mean, there have been academic spaces discussing the danger of this reactivity and this cancel culture because it essentially says nothing is okay to talk about. I mean, if we're just being, again, objective, attempting objectivity, knowing we're prone to subjectivity, we would say we live in a world where if you use certain words on social media, like vaccine or COVID, you can get removed and canceled. Just like, think about that just from an objective perspective. We live in a world where you use words that are not hate speech, where you use a couple words that can literally get your account 
closed and you in some form of trouble. Think about that object. How wild is that? If we weren't talking about COVID or vaccines, just the fact that that is true. Could you imagine in 2019, us talking about this saying we in, in no time, you'll get little badges on everything you write. If it has a certain word, you will get accused of all these things. If you share anything that goes against the general narrative, could you imagine it's like Handmaid's Tale, except instead of people trying to escape from the U.S. to Canada, people are probably trying to escape from Canada to the U.S. now. You know, it is wild to even consider that this is true in our world today. And I think it causes so much dissonance and it's destabilizing and it's hard on our systems. At least it's hard for mine to just know that that is true. And how do we get it back? How do we get back a space where there was room for multiple views and multiple thoughts and we didn't just put people in a box? I don't know. But I know the first step is doing things like having conversations like this and saying it's normal to be scared and you're not crazy. You're not crazy if you're against things that dehumanize. You're not crazy if you're open to discussion. You know, someone said to me, science is not up for debate. And I'm like, that's literally science. That's actually literally the process of discovery of the truth. And as I've said before, science is not afraid of discussion. Propaganda is. Science is not afraid of discussion. It invites it because what gets discovered is better ways to treat people and better ways to retain and maintain and prevent, you know, maintain health and prevent negative health outcomes. I mean, isn't that ultimately the goal? Not like the the real agreement is thou shall do no harm, not thou shall shut the fuck up. And I notice when I hold on to my thoughts and my words, I feel a heaviness in my chest. And I think of Hillary Jacobs Hendel's work where she talks about how when you hold on to core emotions like rage and all the things, you will experience anxiety and depression and other feelings. And I've been feeling those because I've been holding on to words that have been desperately wanting to flow. And I'm always afraid I'm going to get them in the wrong order and maybe say something I shouldn't have said. And But you know what? We have to be brave to put sentences together and words in maybe the wrong order in the wrong way. So if I said anything that wasn't said perfectly, I just ask for a little grace because my intention is not to judge anybody or to even, you know, coerce a decision versus another. It's just my intention is to observe what we're doing and how language is making its way through our world and where there is momentum moving that doesn't feel so good for me, at least. Maybe it doesn't feel good for you. I don't know. But I hope that through this experience, you might feel a little more acknowledged. And at least I do through sharing. And to be honest, you know, like that conversation about you can't have emotional health and be on social media. I mean, I'm really starting to explore, like, how do I have a relationship that I dictate with social media? Because it appeals to every part of our addictive processes, no matter what our addiction is. And I I think of a line that I've shared here before from retreat that I went to with the spiritual teacher Ganga Ji. And one of the attendees was sitting on the stage with Ganga Ji and said, I don't know, you know, like I've quit alcohol, I've quit drugs. And I just, 
can't figure it out. I haven't cracked the code. And she said, get more sober. Get sober from everything that pulls you away from who you are. And I just felt reminded of those words because when I sit with the thought of like what keeps pulling me away from my knowing, my core, my soul, it's social media and the news. And look, like my heart goes out to you if you've been negatively impacted by COVID and the world situation, because how can we not, no matter if it was from COVID or work or mandates or everything, that we've all been impacted. And what a thing to know that we are going through a collective experience, that we need to do this together, that we draw a bigger circle, that you are in my family, that I care about what you're experiencing, no matter what it is. And that the conversation about the collective experience is not the devaluation or the negation of what's going on for people specifically with COVID, but to draw a bigger circle to include those who are experiencing mental health issues, addiction issues, alcohol. And look at, we've been more sedentary. So of course our moods are different. We're eating more. Obesity is one of the largest risk factors. And we've put on weight. And I'd say that we're carrying a collective weight. That requires being turned towards with compassion. And so I take a deep breath. And I hope you do too. And I hope that you begin or continue to explore what your relationship is to your phone and to media and to the truth for you and what is right for you. It takes great courage to stand up to the momentum of a movement and society and to be part of a momentum and to just stand still and to let it move through and beyond you and begin to observe the greater collective dance. And so, much love to all of you. Thanks for listening to me and hearing me out and holding some space for me to just share some of the musings in my mind. Thanks so much for tuning in to today's episode. If this episode resonated with you, one of the best ways to support the show is to go subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss any more. Leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to it, or share the episode with your community on Instagram or whatever social place you like to hang out. This helps get it into more people's ears, and I'm so grateful for your support, always. Thanks again for tuning in. Much love.